Welcome to Between the Waves, covering the changes in biotech that impact our industry. Thank you for joining. We are now over 16 months into the biotech downturn in the public markets, with companies actively reducing capital spend under the cloud of net negative data in the sector, net outflows of capital, and an uncertain near term for capital raises. The performance of the IPO classes of 2021 and 2020 leave a lot of room for improvement, with over 30% of biotech companies projected to require a capital injection this year. Valuations have been reset from lofty highs, where arguably companies were valued for beyond perfection, with many companies now trading at negative or near-negative enterprise values. For many people, this is their first up-down, boom-bust cycle. However, there are equally as many who have lived the prior boom-bust cycles in the last 20-plus years who may take a more measured view beyond some of the -the end-of-the-world headlines we are seeing on a near-daily basis. Today I'm talking to Richard Ross, a technical analyst at Evercore, who tracks and analyzes the overall macro dynamics in the market that have direct impact on our sector. Please join me for a Between the Waves conversation with Richard Ross. But today I have with me uh, Richard Ross. He is a Senior Managing Director at Evercore. Uh, he is Head of Tech Analysis. He's been ranked number one by Institutional Investor in 2018 and 2019. And more importantly, he's been Institutional Investor, All-American Research Team member five years in a row. Um, Rich has been working in the industry for over 25 years at this point. And uniquely, he brings a macro and technical uh, perspective as we think about the biotech industry and what we're seeing actually going on today. So Rich, thank you very much for taking uh, the time to uh, talk to me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. So, you know, when we think about biotech generally, right, I think we become very myopic. So I took a different route than you, right? Very myopic, look just at biotech and really sort of the fundamentals as we think about these companies. And I think we're, we're almost insulted when we look at companies we've invested in where we believe there's very strong fundamentals around drug discovery and development um, when they're really tracking what's going on generally within the market. And they look at, you know, a lot of the uh, novel technology companies out there and really how the trajectory of their stock and the enterprise value ascribed to them has actually tracked what's been generally going on within the market overall. So market sentiment rather than fundamentals of the company. You know, I'd love to get your thoughts just generally as to how you think about the sort of public biotech sector as you look at it from an overall technical macro uh, standpoint. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting, Nesson, when I think about biotech and, and healthcare more broadly, uh, I, I view it the same way that we do it as a firm here at Evercore, which is we take a top-down approach on my team, on the macro team, and we apply those bigger top-down economic themes uh, uh, from the bottom up, and we apply them. And, and I think what you see in healthcare, and again, more specifically to the biotech uh, subsector, is that the group is largely a byproduct of these same macro woes that are weighing on on risk appetite more broadly, many of which are a byproduct, of course, of, of the tragic uh, pandemic, which is to suggest that, that this surge in inflation, the surge in interest rates and commodities around the world, not just the petroleum base, not just crude oil and gasoline, but of course, on the food side of things, which has been exacerbated by, by the war in Ukraine. Um, and, it, and again, we don't traditionally have to think about these things as investors in biotech, but what they're doing is they're impacting the cost of capital. As those interest rates go up, volatility is surging, liquidity is drying up in order to combat inflation and to bring it down to a sector level, all of those things are sort of the lifeblood, I would imagine, of biotech investing. 
But when you think about, you know, with the pandemic, you know, here we go, you know, we go out, we identify diagnostics very rapidly to be able to detect whether you have COVID or not, uh, very quickly moved into the development of vaccines, which then were distributed. And now we're looking at effectively small molecule protease inhibitors, first already approved from Pfizer, another one in development with Partis. You know, it, I think there was um, a consideration of a reevaluation from a global standpoint to the importance of biotech uh, and how it actually directly impacts and maybe a better understanding of it. You look at the market today, what we're down 22.6% year to date, you know, and, and that follows what we saw at the, at the end of 2021. You know, it seems that it's been treated more like every other sector and seems to be just driven from it. So, you know, is, is there any differentiator as we think about biotech as a whole that kind of sep separates it from tech or how should we really be thinking about as we think about you know, taking these companies public and actually holding them as public as public companies. I think this is where the story actually gets a little better on the biotech side, uh, by virtue of the fact that its weakness is now part of its strength because uh, on a relative basis versus other parts of technology in the markets more broadly. When I think about the XBI, which is that equal weighted index of biotech stocks, it really peaked back in January, February of last year, along with the ARC complex, the more concept-driven stocks, the, of course, the more innovative names uh, to include the, the ARC genomic, the ARC GETF as well. So the fact that you peaked in January and February of last year, um, in, in, and as we know, we've had, had quite a stunning decline as well, back to the 2018 and 2020 lows, which is really setting up this technical triple bottom here. Again, as I said, this is where the story gets better for the XBI. So the fact that you peaked and have already gone through 12 to let's call it 14 months of a bear market already, in contrast to the broad market, which just peaked in January of this year. So we are further along in the life cycle of this bear market on the biotech side. And, and again, you've sort of served your five-minute major penalty for fighting, as it were. Um, and I think that will serve you well coming out, whereas some of these other groups are still going through that painful corrective phase. So, okay, so that's a lot, right? So am I to take, yep. take it that your comment here is that we've hit the bottom, we're on our way back up again, and we should recover before other people or, or uh, sorry, other sectors? Or is it a case of that actually our time at, at, at these lows will be actually potentially maintained longer than what we'd expect to see for other sectors? Well, I, as, as I say to my clients, our true bottom is a function of both time and price. Um, in both cases, we've been going down now for over a year in terms of time, and a 65% peak to trough drawdown on the XBI is, is a fairly significant price to pay. Um, now, that said, I do think that there is still an element of time in order to repair the technicals. I don't expect a, a V-shaped reversal or a V-bottom like we saw in the, in the lows of the financial crisis in 2009. You're not going to get that stunning reversal of fortune. I think after a decline of this magnitude, you need to repair not, not just sort of technically, but also psychologically and, and also kind of from a, a corporate finance standpoint. You know, keep in mind, as you well know, we've had a, a great issuance over the past t uh, 12 months, sort of a very, a very liquid public market environment. And when you bring that type of supply to market, the investing community has to digest that supply. But I think that's what we've been going through over the last 12 months. So my point is, I think the bottoming process has begun. 
Let's not expect miracles in terms of the speed of the recovery to the upside. But that's an important statement. The process of making that bottom has begun. And I do think that the next meaningful move from here is higher, not lower. So I think, you know, again, just sticking with the biotech sector, I want to go macro in a minute. But, you know, as we think about it, you're right, right? 78 IPOs in 2020, we saw over 100 in 2021. And obviously, there's been a handful to year to date in 22. Uh, with respect to market digestion of that, you you look at the backdrop where I think there's been reports out that effectively have stated net negative news as we look at the actual biotech sector itself versus positive as we think about press releases and data that's come out from biotech. But also we're facing a situation where you know 30% of biotech companies will need to lightly raise within the next 12 months. And you've got a significant number of these companies that are actually trading with negative EVs. So you know how do you think about where that sits vis-a-vis a other sectors and as you think about investors more on the generalist side that look at those sort of dynamics that are taking place within the bio, biotech uh, sector today yeah I, look i think from that standpoint it's still challenging when you think about what's going on in the, in the economy and financial markets in terms of the tightening of financial conditions that's that's the goal right now in terms of reining in inflation. I know we didn't want to take it down the macro road, but we, we can't ig- ignore it when we speak about capital raising. And, you know, the rise in interest rates has changed the calculus for everyone, um, through, regardless of what lens you look through the markets and regardless of your sector. So the cost of that capital is going up. And in terms of the markets themselves, the increase in volatility, um, it just puts that generalist sort of on their heels. It makes you uh, that that risk appetite continues to erode. And I think there's a certain patience there. So even if something looks interesting uh, from a valuation standpoint or even technically for that matter, when you have increased volatility, when you have pressures on performance in terms of investing performance, that's going to slow the role of the investor and make them perhaps less aggressive. But to, to your earlier point, I still think there's a lot of dry powder out there that is looking for ways to get into the market, not out of the market. But of course, that money is coming in more slowly. Investors are being paid to wait right now. And, and people are not patient. We, we want, and in some cases, you can't be patient. You need that cash today. And it's an unfriendly backdrop really for the first time in years for that liquidity to come into the market rather than that liquidity to come out, which is what we're seeing now in the capital markets or markets more broadly. And as you look at that, you know, are you, uh, you're right. People's patience can be very limited. We've been, people have been kind of sitting on the side with a significant amount of capital that they still need to deploy that they've raised over the last few years. You know, are, in your mindset, do you think that this is likely we'll see a re-entry with people putting capital more aggressively to work in the second half? Or is it something that you think it's actually going to be more sort of ad hoc rather than an actual general, you know, let's put, we need, we now need to put money to work. We're looking at our overall returns for, for the year and for us really to be able to realize any return here, we actually need to, to put this capital to work. I like your thinking in terms of the timing and the back half story. And and look, you know, things can start ad hoc. And then when the momentum builds, there there is a proverbial um, FOMO or fear of missing out to the upside. And I think right now, people perhaps, and I, and I speak towards the public markets that I, that I track, you know, you look at the market and you, you, you're sort of waiting for the next person. Like, okay, I kind of like it here, but you go first. And I think there's a little bit of that mentality, a little of the chicken and the egg. But once that momentum starts to get going, 
you can see it build pretty quickly, especially, again, when we consider we have a sector here that's lost 65% of its value just using the XBI as a blunt tool. It's been going down now for 14 months. By every definition, we've been in a bear market already. So we've already extracted that proverbial uh, pound of flesh, for, for lack of a better metaphor. And when we bring in some of our own house views here at, at Evercore ISI, um, we'd like to think that inflation will begin to peak. In the back half, we're going to get more of a normalization. Some of that central bank policy, that that aggressive tightening to rein in inflation is going to start to slow as you get into the back half. And all of these trends that have been uniquely hostile towards growth investing and, and biotech investing more specifically should start to arc in a more positive direction in the, in the back half. And in the meantime, equity markets tend to move in anticipation of the news flow getting better. So if we think about the back half where we might actually see signs of inflation easing, p- policy getting less tight, less restrictive, you're going to start to see the capital markets or the public markets move first. So I already think part of that bottoming process, as we, we touched upon earlier, ha- has begun here. And when you think about those elements, are there specific things that you would point people to and say, like, these are sort of the metrics that we should be looking at, you know, as we think about indicators to us that, that things are starting to to become more upbeat, let's say, in the market? hundred percent. And I think the easiest thing for people to look at, and, and I point them to it every day, it's, it's what I look at as well. It's not as if this is like, you, you know, uh, macro investing for dummies. <laughs> this is what I look at, too. <laughs> look, 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 I think for many Inflation equals crude and food. Look at the price of crude oil, um, which unfortunately continues to go up. But but again, some of that is a byproduct of, of geopolitics and, and the war. And some of it is a, is a byproduct of, of just flat out inflation and supply demand dynamics. So let's watch crude oil. You're going to need to see the price uh, of gasoline at the pump. You know, if we look at something that we use on a, on a weekly basis, you're going to need to see those gas prices start to come down. Look for crude oil to start to come down. And of course, look at look at those interest rates, you know, 10 year yields up around three percent. They have to stop going up. And and the natural extension of interest rates might be those mortgage rates. You know, we were under three. Now we're just under six, you, you know, somewhere between five and six. And for, for many, that's the single most important price out there. We are a consumer-driven economy. And, and again, I think the mortgage rate, the 10-year yield, crude oil, and gas prices, those are very easy to track for anyone. You don't need to be a, a macro export expert or, or a biotech investor to find these prices. Um, and when those start to ease, we'll get a sense that we're getting this, this inflation under control here. And, and look, just this morning in the UK, 40-year high, 9% TPI. Um, you know, you think about what's weighing on Europe, you have that runaway inflation. And at the same time, their currencies are getting weaker. So the things that you need in terms of food and gas are soaring. And the currency that you use to buy them, if you are outside of the U.S., is falling. And that's kind of a one-two punch for the consumer. So those are the two things, and, and, uh, which brings me to the last point, which would be the dollar. You know, at this point, you'd like to see that dollar ease a little bit because the stronger dollar, and, and again, we have a runaway dollar here in the U.S. that's really almost imposing a tax on the rest of the world as their currencies get weaker just when they need it most to purchase these assets, which are going up in, in price in terms of uh, crude oil, food, et cetera, not to mention service inflation. 
You know, you, you talk about currency, which obviously is a, is a critical consideration here, and, you know, the strength of the dollar and, and the, the hopeful continued maintenance effectively is as the dollar being the primary currency from a global standpoint. But, what you know, I cannot but ask you about crypto then. You know, crypto's in the news, lots going on. I think we kind of look at that and say, you know, that is, you know, a potential surrogate for the kind of overall uh, volatility that we see. Like, as an aside, like, what's your, what's your sort of sense in crypto? How, do we, how should we be thinking about that? Yeah, I think, look, it it speaks very closely to what we're talking about today. When you think about cryptocurrencies and and also um, and and biotech investing, these are longer duration assets. These are assets where we're planting the seeds today. And we're hoping that the sort of, you know, acorn turns into the mighty oak in the future. And that's all well and good when interest rates are low and capital markets are free flowing and liquidity is readily available and there's low inflation and slow and steady growth in the economy and and very accommodative monetary policy. But when all of that reverses, um, interest rates go up, inflation goes up, policy gets tighter, that longer duration asset that doesn't really throw off any cash flow in the short term is going to look uh, less attractive. Um, and, and especially when volatility picks up in the broad market, I mean, people are looking for safety, they're looking for security. And while the future might be bright for, for digital currencies like Bitcoin or, or networks like Ethereum, and, and it's bright for biotech companies, in the short term, the price that you're willing to pay for that is just going to be lower as a byproduct of the same top-down macro concerns that, that we've been focused on. So it's sort of like, you know, regardless of what your view is on the future, that longer duration assets are just going to suffer under this current macro backdrop until we get it under control. So, uh, you know, when we, as we think about that, so long-term investments, and this is something I've certainly have struggled with a lot, you know, when we think about the metrics that are used in the public markets to effectively value or uh, determine, you know, the, the, the success um, uh, of a company, you know, we're looking at quarterly EPSs, you know, where obviously in biotech, most companies, non-revenue generating, you don't really, you don't, you do not have an EPS, right, in, in reality. Um, so misses tend to pull it down, which is sort of the wrong metric and thinking quarter by quarter for these companies also seems to be the wrong metric. Is, is there, are we setting many of these companies up in the wrong sort of ways we think about setting expectations from a public market investor standpoint? Yeah, and and look, I think this is an an age-old debate, I I imagine, within your sector, and not just within your sector, but but many across the markets, which is sort of that battle between the focus on short-term performance uh, versus the the long-term benefits. And and I don't really have a clear-cut answer how we get away from that. I I think in volatile times, the focus on short-term performance becomes even, even sharper and even heightened. And in a sense, you know, especially this year when you're off to such a rough start, obviously not just in, in biotech, but in markets more broadly, I think all investors um, are, are on the defensive to a degree. And so it might, my, I guess my some point would be it's not fair. It's probably not the best way to do it, but it's the way that we've done it for years. And it's probably unlikely to change in the short term uh, or, or medium term for that matter. Absolutely. Uh, that is for sure. Um, well, you know, I suppose for a lot of people, though, too, right, this is like, this is probably the first downturn cycle that they actually have experienced. Whereas, you know, 
been doing it for you've been doing it for 25 years been doing it for nearly 25 years myself you know we've seen multiple ones come through um it seems every time there's an uptick you know when the market's actually doing well companies are actually getting really well capitalized and, and cost of capital is cheap you know the bankers invariably say well this time it's different right you know it's different because of these reasons and uh, right. we're almost holding our breath after probably you know 18 months you know, waiting for the downturn to actually hit. What can we learn, if anything, from the prior ones? Were they different versus what we're seeing today? You know, is there anything we can learn from them? Um, or is it really these are sort of unique events in their own right that have different sort of fingerprints associated with them? I, I think there are both similarities and differences. I, I think there are instances where things are actually different this time. Um, and I say that from the macro standpoint, you, you know, when we considered the 13, 14 years post the financial crisis, which commenced in 08 and bottomed in March of 2009, it's really been a phenomenal run of success in risk assets more broadly, in particular on the growth and technology side of the tape. And, and think about what has driven that. I'll, I'll take a step back and say I was surprised myself. I looked at some of the year-to-date performance of the NDX, you know, the, the NASDAQ uh, benchmark on the technology and growth side. It's been higher 12 of 13 years since the financial crisis. And in the one year that it deigned to lose money, it was down 1%. I mean, I didn't even realize that that run of success. And bear in mind, the S&P is largely a technology and growth dominated index. So it has has benefited uh, commensurately. So my point being, think about the macro forces that have driven that run of wealth creation and alpha generation, the absence of inflation, the absence of any interest rates or yield, low commodity commodity prices and very, very accommodative monetary policy. So when people say it's, it's never different um, or they joke about the fact that it is different this time, in reality, it is very different from a top-down standpoint. It is a completely different macro backdrop than what we have seen since the financial crisis. Now, admittedly, some of the differences on the, on the macro backdrop from the top down um, may be viewed as just sort of a, a temporary shift as a byproduct of this once in a lifetime pandemic and then exacerbated by the war, of course. So it, these trends can reverse. However, we are in the midst of it right now. We're in the thick of it. And it's going to take some time to work our way out of it. But I think as investors, whether we trade stocks in the public market or we invest in companies in the, in the private market, um, I think we all have to accept that the calculus of our industry has changed by virtue of these tectonic shifts across asset classes, vis-a-vis interest rates, commodities, currencies, inflation, and of course, um, central bank policy as a byproduct of, of the aforementioned. Well, it's interesting that you you know you mentioned the um, the private markets, right? The 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 the, the, the kind of flow through from public market valuations and overall expectations to private market tends to lag six to 12 months, you know, so as we as we think about the sort of financing, you know, um, continuum for these companies, and I I don't know if this is representative across all sectors, but certainly within biotech, you know, the, the valuations on the public markets, you know, where you see these sort of downturns that are consistent and, and heavy, you know, takes a while to filter through to the private side. So, you know, I, um, 
the suspicion that, that I certainly have is we'll continue to see people actually taking opportunities of low valuations, you know, neg EVs uh, in these companies to start to invest into them. The private side will probably see retrenchment for a period of time um, as people are waiting for the realization of, you know, the step downs and valuations and capital conservation uh, within the sector. So when you, when you, when you think yeah. about the money that's sitting there on, and when you think about where it will be placed, you know, as the market sort, sort of reopens or you start to see the signals that you talked about earlier on, where would you tend to see that capital go initially? And, and where does where does kind of the biotech sector kind of sit on that sort of continuum? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, when you talk about the, the dance, if you will, between public and private, the first thing I would say, again, and I'm no expert um, in, in private market investing, but most of our clients, when you think about big institutional investors, they have both public publicly traded investments and, and private investments. And, and what happens when volatility picks up, um, you, you know, people are selling in the public markets because they're deeper, more liquid, and perhaps not, not so willing to kind of mark down those private investments, which perhaps might not trade quite as freely, even though, of course, there are secondary markets for, for private investments as well. But again, when one side of your business is under pressure and the public market, sort of the, the public face of it, I think it's going to make you a little uh, more reticent on the, on the private side to commit that capital. You just sort of go into that defense mode more broadly. And now in terms of when that capital does get deployed, where does it go first? That, that, that's a great question. And, and, you know, people often ask, like, what's the next, what, what's going to be the leadership group when we come out of this? And, and my answer is, like, let, let's stop going down first before we start talking about um, <laughs> going back up. You, you know, Warren Buffett has his, his great rule of holes, which is when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging and climb out. You know, I think whether it's public or private, we're still digging right now. And, and that's part of the problem. My sense, though, if I could give a short, a, a long answer to a short question, Nesson would be, we've had a very defensive case right now. And you've seen that in the internals of healthcare, where the pharmaceutical companies, the DRG, the, the benchmark drug index of large cap pharma is actually up 2% year to date in relation to the S&P, which is down 15%, the XBI down 36, ARCG down 46, and, and the IBB down 23. So, you know, you, it just shows you how strong the defensive component is or the defensive undercurrent in the market, mm -hmm. not to mention managed care, which is essentially flat. So it's very value oriented. It's very defensive. So coming out of it, I would expect to see the opposite. That when these macro forces turn, when inflation gets reined in, when interest rates stop going up and commodity prices start going down, that you're going to see a much more aggressive posture towards risk taking. And the good news is, it's sort of good news, bad news, is that when we become more aggressive and we want to invest in those longer duration companies, many of which have already gone down 60 to 80%. So the things that you're going to want to buy have come your way in terms of price, which is not great while it's happening, coming your way in terms of price. But when you want to put money to work, you know, it's like Warren Buffett. When his stocks go down, he says, great, because they've just gone on sale. Um, maybe you don't want a 75% sale, but it is what it is. <laughs> Right. No, that's that. That is absolutely true. I think that it, it it is looking at where does the capital go. But there's the there's an exuberance also, right, that we've seen in the marketplace as we think about, you know, the the the, the boom bust. Um, you know, I think within biotech, we've obviously seen a significant amount of capital flow in. Um, how 
targeted um, and measured um, that the, 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 the direction of that capital, I think, has certainly been something we've been trying to get our heads around as you think about some of these valuations also. I mean, you know, when you think about the valuation metrics that are put in place, for biotech, it's a little bit harder, right? For non-revenue generating companies, you're looking at where they are in the actual, you know, the, uh, drug discovery and development continuum. Have they even identified a development candidate to go through? And it just felt, I think, for some of these companies on the enterprise value standpoint, that they were almost valued beyond perfection, right? So, you know, that exuberance really seemed to be, at least in certain sectors within within the biotech area, you know, certainly seemed to be um, arguably overvalued. Do you, like, I, you know, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Is it something you look at or think about at all, or is it just yeah. more... While I don't look at it through the lens of valuation, I think through the lens of market cycles themselves and just those cycles of of greed and fear, we have seen this before. So as much as we were just debating, you know, is it different this time? Yes, in, 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 in from the top down, it is different. There are, there are real world differences across asset classes, which have changed the calculus of investing. But by the same token, these boom bust cycles in more speculative growth corners of the market are not new to anyone in this industry. You know, we've seen it before, whether it was the 2015 parabolic reversal um, within biotech or the bigger uh, tech bubble of them all back in 2000. But, you know, even as you were speaking, Nesson, you know, that tech bubble off the top, it took three years for the NASDAQ composite to complete that bear market. Mm -hmm. It sank 30 plus percent three years in a row. But look where we are today. So, again, I'm sure at the time people felt like they never wanted to look at a tech or growth stock again. Yet many of those companies turned into multi-hundred billion dollar, nay, trillion dollar companies. So I'm not saying that every um, fledgling biotech stock on the board right now is going to turn into a winner, but only to suggest that we have seen these cycles before. And as we discussed earlier, you're already 12 to 16 months of the way through what could be in, in many ways analogous to that tech bubble. Maybe it takes two to three years. I don't think it takes the full three years because the life cycle of everything has been shortened in the last 20 years since that tech bubble. Things just happen faster. Information is disseminated more quickly. Investors act faster. I, I, I think the world just moves at a quicker pace. Nobody watches baseball anymore. We'd rather watch football. It only takes an hour and a half. And by that, I mean European football, um, <laughs> what we call soccer here. Um, <laughs> you know, you buckle in, you know what you're in for. You get your two 45-minute halves and you're, and you're done with it. Um, and I think that's how people feel about investing. Um, so my point being, we've seen these cycles of greed and fear boom and bust before. Um, the top-down landscape will change. It will normalize. And, and again, it's not our fault as investors, whether public or private, um, to see some of these historic dislocations nest. I mean, just this morning, as I look at my screen, Target is down 25%. I mean, Target. Right. So it, there's just a certain opacity out there in the public markets where even the most widely followed, you know, sort of storied American institutions, Walmart, fell over 10% yesterday on earnings. I mean, these are the most widely trafficked stores and companies that we have. They're as solid as she goes. And investors are missing by 25% on target. I mean, typically to bring it into your world, you would have to fail a drug trial for a stock to go down 25%. And now a retailer like Target is doing it. And I, by the way, I'm not kicking Target. I'm just saying it's not our fault. You, you know, this, the, the pandemic has wreaked havoc on, on the financial markets, both public and private. And again, the, this sort of opacity is, is something that we're all facing, regardless of the sector or lens through which we look at the markets. 
So, I, you know, this is going to go back to haunt me, my next statement. But like, at times, I actually think this is not a bad thing for the sector. There's a, there's a Darwinian selection that effectively takes place, you know, as you think about strength of, from a fundamental standpoint, strength of the company's uh, focus uh, and, and as you think about turnover within teams in their own rights. So, you know, I think that you, you talk about how tech kind of rebounded and you see these, you know, high value, high flying tech companies that have emerged effectively from the flames from these uh, downturns. But I, I, I suspect that that's really driven by, you know, the Darwinian selection that's taken place as companies really have to justify themselves uh, and actually figure out what is the right business model and strategy to be able to su- survive these downturns. Okay, definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. Now, to your point, you know, it's funny. In technical parlance, sometimes we'll say, oh, it's a healthy correction, and, and clients will write back, well, it doesn't feel healthy, you, you know, and, and it gets to your point about sort of short-term versus long-term. In, in the short-term, when it hits performance, it feels terrible. It doesn't feel like a healthy correction or a healthy shakeout um, within the community. But by the same token, as an investor looking for those long-term gains, those secular compounders, if you will, over time, the shakeout phase is where you, you would think you would be um, sharpening your knives um, you, you know, to get that money into the ring here. And, and again, I think we all know on the way back up, while it's great, the money seems to be rolling in and people's performance numbers are strong. When you have those vertical ascents as we had coming out of the, the pandemic in 20 into very early 21, um, in, in the biotechs, we know, we know that that is not sustainable to just go on a, on a vertical ascent in perpetuity. That's not how it works. Um, and, and again, as much as the tech bubble was, was capital destroying, it, it really, that bust, was ultimately sowing the seeds of the next great boom that we're still enjoying the fruits of today. So I, I think your point, while I, I get the spirit of it doesn't come across as uniquely positive, for investors, it is uniquely positive to have these shakeout phases, as painful as it might be for all of us in terms of the short-term performance. Well, last question for you, right? This has been great, Rich. Thank you very much for the time. You know, the last question really is around more back to very high macro standpoint as we, you know, I kind of look from a global integration standpoint where, you know, we saw true or what, what was going for true globalization and, you know, real-time communication and, you know, market dynamic, you know, so if we think about the arbitrage people were able to play years ago between Europe and the U.S. as you think about buy and sell, you know, obviously that's now really off the table as you think about speed of transaction, speed of data flow, and overall integration uh, from a communication standpoint, it seems or it feels like we're starting to step back from that and we're seeing more fragmentation now globally. Um, do, you, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think it's a troubling development, you, you know, and it's something that you hear increasingly in conversations um, with, with investors. And, and again, it's one of those, what had been one of the great macro drivers of the success coming out of the financial crisis, which was the globalization and or sort of the interconnectedness, which helped to, to keep those inflationary forces at bay by moving supply chains um, around the world. And, and again, by connecting disparate markets globally that hadn't necessarily been connected um, quite quite 
in, in ways that we have done so since the financial crisis. And now, of course, you know, we've started to unravel some of that, that globalization um, in, in whether it started with, with the tariffs uh, against China back under the Trump administration, not to make this uh, political in any way, shape or form. But I think that was sort of the early seeds. And then ultimately, of course, with, with the tragic uh, war that's going on. And, and of course, people still concerned about what's going on in, in China um, as it pertains to Taiwan. Again, I, I have not not giving any personal opinions, just taking things from the headlines. So it is somewhat troubling. Bear in mind that moving away from globalization, if that's where we're heading, in fact, um, it has inflationary undertones. Um, and that's not great at a time where the biggest risk for most, not just from an economic standpoint, but really, you know, from a market standpoint and a real world standpoint, are those inflationary pressures. So, yeah, globalization uh, was really good. And if we back away from that, and I'm not saying that there's a bigger secular shift away from it, only to suggest on the margin, it's clearly been eroding in, in recent years. Um, that would be a negative in particular as it pertains to inflation, which is the biggest negative on the board right now. So, you know, to extend that a little bit more, and I, and I appreciate all the caveats here, but to take it a step further, is it is it fair to assume if we continue to see us going down this path, you know, any upside or uptick that we'll see in the market likely will be tempered somewhat or significantly by this as we think about, to your point, inflation, but also ca- overall capital flows? Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Not not to sound so dour or to go out on a low note per se, but my my market calls um, really across asset classes would be consistent with that thinking. That it would be overly optimistic to suggest that we just get right back on the horse and begin a new secular bull market um, in the absence of any real change across that that macro backdrop. I mean, let let's be fair. These are strong headwinds um, for the consumer in terms of higher mortgage rates, higher interest rates, higher food prices, higher fuel prices. And, and of course, as, as difficult as it seems in the States, it's even worse in Europe. And it's even worse around the world when we consider um, that their currencies are getting weaker when they need them to be getting stronger. So against that backdrop, um, doesn't mean that it's 2008, as I, I sort of wrote it in a note. It, it's not 08, but it still ain't great. Um, kind of thing. So I don't, I don't think the chart suggests we're steaming towards a, a global financial crisis, but it would not surprise me if, if we settled into a period of sideways chop and volatility, broadly speaking, um, in, in the months to come. And again, I would only say that is, that is sort of consistent with where we've come from. You know, consider that the S&P doubled off the lows in 2020. I mean, a 100% move in a major index in under 24 months. I think it took 20 months into the January high. Um, you know, after a market like the U.S. doubled in under two years, you would expect a period of sideways consolidation to kind of digest some of those gains, not to mention when you have these historic tectonic shifts across asset classes. So um, I, I have a guarded approach uh, on, a, on an index level going forward in terms of risk appetite. Um, but again, I'm always open-minded and, and try to be fair and balanced here. And if we saw some positive change from the top down um, a, across asset classes, then you get more constructive on equities. But you know, again, a, a true bottom in terms of the next bull market will be a function of both price and time. And while it feels like we've been in a bear market for four years, you know, the S&P was at an all-time high less than five months ago. So in the, in the, in the life cycle of a bear market, four and a half months yeah. down from an all-time high, 15% off the top of the S&P, this isn't exactly uh, the, the crash of 1929 uh, we're talking about. Not, knock on wood, not, not that anyone's hoping for that. 
Well, thank you for putting that in perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, biotech wasn't even really around then, so. <laughs> well, Richard, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Really appreciate the insight that you provided and, and given the context of the sector from a more macro standpoint and how we think it fits for that. So really appreciate it. Uh, fingers crossed to uh, the next bull market uh, rearing its head soon, uh, sooner rather yeah. than later. Thank My you. pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Nathan. Thanks a lot. It looks like we need to prepare ourselves for a longer cycle with uncertainty around when we can expect things to turn. Key appears to be inflation rate and deglobalization of the market. Unlike before, this time it may truly be different. However, this is shades of grey, and on macro level, this is part of the natural cycle of the capital markets, and this too will pass. Thank you for joining us.